Good morning, everybody. I hope it's, you all feel as good as you look because you're looking pretty good. I'd like to uh, begin by having a prayer this morning. Our sister Essie's wanting us to have a prayer for her sake. So will you bow with me for a moment, please? Our Father in heaven, we approach you at this time on behalf of our sister Essie. We pray, Lord, that you will help her to restore back to her natural health. We ask this, Father, not only for her sake, but for ours as well, because she takes care of so many things that we do and have. We'd like her to be of good health because we love our sister and we need her to be back with us healthy. We're very father and are grateful for our sister Ann's recovery. I know it's not over, but she's with us and we're grateful for that. We wanna pray for our sister Debbie, Lord, that you'll be with her tomorrow. She undergoes surgery that there be no complications. Her physician will be very skilled and her recovery will be very swift. We pray, Father, for our brother Ben, that you'll be with him and sustain him as he undergoes treatments that are very difficult. We pray, Father, for our sister Ruby we're so grateful and thankful that she's with us. We pray, Lord, that a portion of her health would be returned. Father, we, we have so many that we love and care for and we miss. We ask you to bless them all. We know that you have the power, you have the ability, and we pray at your will. But it's not our will that should be accomplished, but yours. In Christ's holy name we pray, amen. Okay. Uh, we were talking about uh, Second Thessalonians, the man of sin. This is uh, part three. Apparently there's going to be a part four. Uh, as long as we've gone this far, might as well finish it up. So uh, Lord willing, we'll finish this lesson up next week. Uh, I, I put a note on here. All quotations will be from the New King James Version, unless otherwise noted. Uh, my... Uh, I don't normally study from the New King James Version, but most people do, so I use it. But uh, I'm going to leave uh, off the reference to New King James. Anytime I deviate, I'll, I'll put up the version, if it's the American Standard Version or the English Standard or whatever. Uh, I'll make sure to identify the book. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2 is discussing the second coming, the falling away, and the man of sin being revealed again. 
Paul's telling this again. That's what he says in verses 5 and 6. He spoke to them about these matters when he was with them, and now he's away and there's still some problems, and he's writing back and talking about the same matters again. The first three verses read a few moments ago very quickly concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the gathering together to him, the day of judgment. Not to be soon shaken in mind, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day of judgment will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. You and I can't say that Jesus won't come back today. The people in Thessalonica, they could. They could say the Lord isn't coming back today. Why? Because the falling away hadn't occurred. The man of sin hadn't been revealed. He wasn't going to come back before that. So they knew and could say, Jesus isn't coming back today. It's going to be some other time out in the future. I don't know when. Well, we can't say that because this is all taking place. Uh, hopefully, uh, the end is uh, near. Hopefully. Uh, Christianity is supposed to exist until time ends when Christ comes back he will receive his church at that time during this period however Paul is talking about a falling away that is those who are dissatisfied with the Christian system and they change certain parts of it uh, what they call themselves we do not know they call themselves a church of Christ or the church of God if they chose to however because they had abandoned the teaching of the Lord Jesus, they were no longer a part of his body. They were separated from his body. John said in 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us, meaning they were of a different spirit, a different mind. They had a different attitude and idea. Well, first there was going to be this falling away take place, then the man of sin is to be revealed. And then thirdly, Christ will return. He will destroy the man of sin. And he will receive his people and take them to heaven to be with him. These are the three things that are supposed to happen. And this is a very sketchy layout as to how they would happen. So the second coming of Christ would never take place until after the man of sin had been revealed. That makes the man of sin a very important creature. Who is this man of sin? This is what men have looked for throughout the ages. Methodist scholar Albert Barnes, noted scholar, very, very intelligent man. He said, most Protestant commentators have referred it to the great apostasy under the papacy. In other words, it's the Roman church under the headship of the pope the man of sin, uh, who would uh, take the throne in 606 A.D. Apostasy and the apostasy. Uh, we need to differentiate between these two, and it's very important. Uh, apostasy was common in the first century, somewhat common. There were a number of apostasies in progress, even as the New Testament was being written. And it stands to reason. Whenever the truth of Christ is preached, the devil is always going to be very nearby. And he's going to counterpunch. 
He'll do it every time. Whenever there's a success, he's going to counterpunch. Well, the only way he can counterpunch is through human beings. And that's what he does. He uses people to take a strike at the Lord uh, throughout the ages. So we want to think for just a moment about apostasy and the apostasy. Apostasy uh, simply means it's a, it's a departure from the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The gospel that Jesus gave it is going to last till time ends. There will be no additions, subtractions, no modifications. It exists just as it was delivered to people in the first century. That's what we have in our hands today. Well, like I said, some people were not satisfied with this one narrow way, and they chose to widen it by making changes. So apostasy means to depart from the way of the Son of God. When we talk about the apostasy, we're making a distinction between apostasies, which occur throughout the years, and the apostasy that Paul the Apostle was talking about in 2 Thessalonians 2. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul said, The Spirit expressly says that in latter times, sometimes in the future, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. They will speak lies and hypocrisy. They will have their own conscience seared with a hot iron. They will forbid people to marry, certain groups to marry. Um, celibacy among the priesthood, perhaps. They will command people to abstain from certain foods. You can't eat uh, fish, I mean meat, on Friday or something of that nature. These are some things that came to pass throughout the centuries. The local apostasies were fairly common. Uh, let me show you. You read the the scriptures, and you may not think of it in this light, but these were apostasies that were in progress. In Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30, Paul issued a warning to the elders at Ephesus. He said, I know this. Well, the only way he could know it was by divine inspiration. He was told by the Holy Spirit that after my departure, after I leave you, brethren, savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. Men will come in from the outside of the church, uh, perhaps uh, as a preacher, a Bible teacher, perhaps just as a person who moves about the congregation. But there are certain men who are going to come in among you, and they're not going to spare the flock. They're going to try to devour the church. They're going to try to alienate some people from the church. And this was going on back in the book of Acts while Paul was still living. And uh, these wolves, number one, they existed. Number two, they were ready to attack once Paul got out of the way. Also, from among yourselves, the eldership, men are going to rise up, and they're going to take charge. They will speak perverse things, the purpose to draw away disciples after themselves. He's talking about an apostasy taking place at Ephesus. And we know that it did. It wasn't too long after Paul spoke these words that there was uh, problems at Ephesus. They were bombarded with false teachers, and many people were led astray. Some were not, but some were. Colossians 2 and 8, Paul said, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, 
it was a problem that Paul was aware of. And he's warning the people of Colossae not to let them teach them something that's not true. They'll teach you deceitful things, philosophy, based on the traditions of men. I don't know if there's ever been a generation that's been more bombarded by human philosophy than ours. There, there's so much today where, where men uh, theorize this or that or the other thing. And, and it's contrary to what the scriptures teach, as though they are the end all of truth and knowledge. Uh, and it's uh, hard, especially when they own the school systems, when they, when, they, when they put these things into television for little children to watch on cartoons. These children watch this from day go. And as time passes, they're digesting this information over and over and over and over again. It's become a very serious problem for some children to even believe in God. They will do this according to the basic principles of the world. That's all they've got to work with. That's all they've got to work with. The only thing they know is the world, the creation. That's all they know. They study it. They live it. They love it. It's their God. This is all they have. Their knowledge can rise no further, no higher than, than the sun because they're encapsulated in the body and they're in love with the world that's going to be destroyed in the end. And their theories, therefore, are baseless. Just human imagination. Your guess or my guess. And they even admit it sometimes. Think of the phrase, the theory of evolution. The theory of evolution. Evolution's not really a theory, but they call it the theory of evolution. A theory, well, it's a guess. They've surmised something. They think it's this way. They believe it's this way. And yet, at the same time, teach it as though it's a matter of fact. And the evidence demonstrates that it isn't a matter of fact, but it continues to be taught in that fashion. Not according to Christ. This is the whole thing. To avoid having one to whom we must give an account they ignore him. In Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6, Paul said, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. He had just been in Galatia a year earlier. He had won many people to Christ. Some were endowed with gifts of the Spirit. They were given this incredible gift of knowledge, and they were teaching one another the truth. And now Paul's been gone for a year, maybe 18 months. And it's come to his attention, there's trouble in Galatia. And some of the disciples have drawn away from the group. Like those John spoke of. They went out from us, but they were not of us. There was an apostasy in progress. And this occurred, he says, because of false brethren secretly brought in. They came in by stealth. They knew, they knew what they were doing was wrong. That's why they came in by stealth. 
if they were teaching something that was truth, they could have come through the front door. But they knew it wasn't truth. They had to sneak in because they're sneaky little people. And they want to go around and devour people one at a time. That they might bring us into bondage, he says. Then in chapter 6, verse 12, the apostle said, As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these will compel you to be circumcised only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. If there was a church in Galatia in the early part of the second century, I don't know it. They didn't last long. They were devoured by false teachers. And the church, as Christ built it, no longer existed in that region. Apostasy was in progress, even while Paul wrote this letter. In 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, Peter stated a matter of fact. There were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. Among who? Among God's people. Wherever the truth is going to be proclaimed, there's always going to be those who will oppose it. Satan isn't going to let a group stand by and, and, and get away with showing the light of God. He won't tolerate it. He'll attack, and he does so through false teachers. They will secretly bring in destructive heresies, various teachings of different sorts. They'll even deny the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And John said in 1 John 4 and 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but put them to the test. Don't listen to all these preachers who come running through the congregation. Test them. See whether or not they tell the truth. You can measure what they're saying by the word of God. So put them to the test. Find out if them rascals are, are true gospel preachers or if they're lying. Make a distinction. Judge them and know who they are, whether they are of God. Why, John? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Oh, no, apostasy was very common in the first century. Wherever there was a church, there was going to be division brought in by false teachers. In 2 Corinthians 11, 13-15, Paul said, For such are false apostles. They claimed to be apostles when they really weren't. This was going on at Corinth. There were people at Corinth claiming that they were apostles. He said, they're not really apostles. They're deceitful workers. They're lying to you. They're deceiving you. They're trying to get you to follow them. They would transform themselves into apostles of Christ, having the appearance of Christ, not the real thing, however. And no wonder they do this, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their words. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 2, the Lord said to the church at Ephesus, I know your works, your labor, your patience. You cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles, but they're not, and you have found them to be liars. The Lord commended them for all that they had done. False teachers were a problem from the day the church began. And they've been a problem ever since. Some people today, they get upset. For I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. 
preach your own gospel, leave the other fellow alone. Is that what Paul was doing? Is that what Peter did? Is that what John did? No, they spoke against such things. And why? Because they wanted the saints to know the truth. They wanted the saints to be aware that there are people who will try to deceive you into believing a lie. And you've got to stay on your toes so that they won't be able to do it. The cost is too high. Your salvation is at stake. And you've got to listen to what we're saying. This was the idea behind their warnings. It may be an unkind thing to do to the false teacher and their ilk, but it's a very kind thing to do for the people of God. Some of the corruptions that were in process at, in the first century even, there were changes in the plan of redemption, sprinkling for baptism, infant baptism, which came around in the second century. There were changes in worship being called a mass rather than a worship service. There was the veneration of Mary. There was Mary becoming the mother of God, a notch higher than Jesus. So many things came through the centuries. It would take a long time to come to fruition. There were changes in church governments. Instead of bishops, they had the bishop, or put it this way, Instead of elders, there was the elder, the elder above the elders. These were some of the first changes, oh, probably around 85 AD, 50 years after Jesus started his church, that there were changes in church government that were taking place. And there's also a false history of the church, uh, grossly, grossly uh, perverted by the man of sin. John F. Rowe's got a book. I'd recommend it. I have a copy. I don't know where it's at, though. Somebody borrowed it. And sometimes it goes from one hand to another, and I don't know what hand it landed in. But it's a, it's a good volume. I may buy another one. It's a history of apostasies. I've got a lot of notes from it that I collected about 30 years ago. Um, I'd like to get that book back. Uh, the History of Apostasies, wrote, written in 1958. Anyway, if you run across a copy of it, read it. It's certainly worth reading. Uh, the way things transpired, I'm, I'm trying to break it down very simply. The church grew and spread throughout the Roman Empire. We're all aware of that. And I said a moment ago, wherever Jesus puts a church, Satan is going to bring a false teacher. And the false teachers were sure to come. And they too spread throughout the empire. And then you had a time when the church, about third century, late part of the second and the whole third century, the church was disappearing more or less. Congregations were getting very small. Churches were ceasing to exist. And this too is happening, happening all over the empire. Why? Because those who were advocating the lies, the, the deceptions, they grew, which is the way it seems to always go. 
is that when the lies and deceptions appear, most people are, are drawn to that more than the truth. They prefer a lie over the truth. So what happened was these churches that began by these teachers, they grew stronger and stronger, and the Church of Christ grew weaker and weaker. It never went out of existence, but it became quite insignificant by the time we go into the fourth century. And then Constantine, oh, I don't know that he revived the church. He's credited for that. He made Christianity the state religion, but it wasn't Christianity that he made the state religion. It was all these false churches. The Church of Christ was almost unknown. I don't know if Constantine ever knew what it was. All he knew is the church was what he saw on the corner in the capital city. Well, eventually, all these had to merge, and they did merge in the year 606 when the Roman Empire uh, ordained Boniface III as the first pope of the Roman Catholic Church in the year 606. It took that long for the falling away to come to fruition. The Roman government had to be dissolved, which for all practical purposes happened in the year 456 AD. Uh, they, were still, they still existed, but they were only a vassal government to stronger, stronger people, and the stronger people happened to be the church, what they called the church. It was the power now, and the Roman government was subservient to it. And then over the next hundred years or so, the church grew so strong. There was so much infighting, especially between Constantinople and Rome, that something had to be done. Somebody had to be appointed the church. And uh, the emperor decided to make the church at Rome the church. It didn't last for long, about 1000 A.D., uh, the Church of Constantinople uh, warred against the Church at Rome, and that, that's where you come up with the Greek Orthodox Church. The two groups uh, one time were united, but they became divided. The Greeks couldn't tolerate it anymore. They could read Greek, and the Romans had butchered it. The apostasy was in its beginning stages uh, in the first century, as I just pointed out. It was, it was going on but it wasn't the apostasy, just a bunch of apostasies. Second Thessalonians 2 and 7, Paul said the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. That's what he's talking about, all these problems in the church. It's already at work, and it's just a matter of time until he who restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Of course, the Roman government was the one that restrained it. The church could not accumulate power, only what the emperor would let them have. When they got to a certain level, he cut them off and take their money away from them. Uh, and this went on for uh, quite, a, quite a time. It was a battle between the government and the church. It's strange, too, because these were the two beasts that Satan raised up back in uh, chapter 13. It was the government, false government, or the government and false religion. <clears throat> Thomas Newton said, as this evil began in the apostles' days, 
and was continuing the world to the second coming of Christ in power and great glory, it necessarily follows that it was to be carried on not by one man, but by a succession of men in several ages. There you go. The man of sin is a title. The presidency of the United States. There's one presidency of the United States. How many heads have worn that title through the years? They were all presidents, but there was not one that you would call the president. There's a presidency, many presidents, okay? There's uh, uh, popery, if you will, but many men have wore the title through the years. This is how it's going to continue until Christ comes back. Many men will wear the title. It's not about one man. It's about a position, if you will, a seat of authority in the group that's identified as the falling away. Do I know this is fact? No, I don't. This is what I've surmised through my studies. I understand about the falling away and the coming of the man of sin. And as I look back through the last 2,000 years, I draw the only one that fits the bill. And I don't see why we should deny what seems obviously correct. It's not my contempt for Catholicism. I came out of the Catholic Church. Never was a member. They all thought I was, but I wouldn't. Spent many years with them. This was a bitter pill for me to swallow. But I do believe it's true. Traits of the falling away and the man of sin. Some of the traits, at least. One is lawlessness. Second Thessalonians. Wow. Is that clock right? Oh, man. Well, I started this. Let's do this one. Traits of the falling away and the man of sin. Lawlessness is what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7. Uh, according to Newton again, the Pope doeth whatsoever he listeth, wills, even things unlawful, and is more than God. Now, he took this out of the uh, Catholic Encyclopedia. I should have noted that, but I forgot to. He took this from the Catholic Encyclopedia. This is what they say about the Pope in the Roman Church. Now, let's read it again. The Pope doeth whatsoever he wants to do, even things that are unlawful, and he is more than God. That's why he can do things that are unlawful. And that's why they've done many things that are unlawful. There's so many things we could discuss, but uh, I don't have time for that today. Donald Atwater, he's a, an apologist for Catholicism. Uh, he wrote, and this is in the Catholic Dictionary also, uh, tradition, that is the voice of the church, is superior to the scriptures. That sounds familiar, does it not? Remember how the rabbis felt about tradition being more important than the things Moses wrote? They went by tradition over Moses. Well, this is the same thing that happened in Catholicism as well. 
the traditions they established were more important than the scriptures were. Well, I'm going to not go there. We'll, uh, we'll continue next week, God willing. Um, there's a lot of things, uh, a lot of dangers, if you will, that are out in the world. And we face them all the time. They say on TV, these commercials, you are what you eat. That's not correct. You are what you think. If junk goes in, then junk obviously is going to come out. What we ingest is what we shall become because we are what we think. It's important for us to pay attention to the things that get our attention. There are so many philosophies, so many theories of men that we're subjected to every day of our life. And mostly I, I, I feel for the children because they're doing something now they never did when I was a kid. They, they've, they've infected these cartoons on the TV with philosophy that these children should not be exposed to. But they're doing it nonetheless. They're already developing programs about transitioning from male to female to teach children that it's natural for children to transition in the young years. They find out that they're supposed to be something other than what they are. There's so many, so many, so many things that demand our attention and at the end of the day we are what we think and that's the only thing that's going to matter I think we're all intelligent enough to know that we're here for a reason there has to be a reason you don't live and die and that's the end of the story. I think that's just silly. There's got to be something more to life. We're too, we're too wonderfully made. We're too sophisticated. We're, we're too grand to be for nothing more than death. To me, the the obvious conclusion is that we shall be judged according to a purpose that was purposed of us by the one that gave us life. And according to scriptures, that's the truth. That one day we will stand in the day of judgment. We will face the Son of God, not as the Savior of the world. That job's over on that day he's not the savior anymore he's a judge and it's a day of sentencing not a day of salvation if the Lord were to come today where would I be how would I fare 
He might come today. There's a lot of us that we pray every day that today be the day that the Lord comes. I'm anxious to see him. And I hope he comes in my lifetime because I want to watch everything happen. I think it'll be more than credible. But the real question is, how would I fare? How would you fare? Don't tell me. I don't want to know. I don't need to know. But just ask yourself, how would you fare if you had to meet your maker today? If you're satisfied with your answer, good for you. But if you're not satisfied, you should change. Become a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. How sad, how sad would be to lose your soul. Don't do that.